it's very clear to me how it all interconnects between your veteran politics and your kind of class politics. Yeah, I hope so. And I, I wouldn't want to make out that those things always, it's always been a smooth process to, to kind of make those things into one thing because it's not, and there are lots of contradictions involved. Obviously, we're, we're serious people. We understand that these things are messy. It's a messy process. But it was interesting to talk to lots of other veterans, including people who have left very recently, mm. the last couple of years, and, and see that they're at different stages of that same process. Because you're, in a sense, you're trying to reconcile things which can be held by outsiders to be completely irreconcilable, but in fact can be reconciled when you understand that history and life and lived experience and all these things are messy. It's a messy process. In terms of the kind of veterans you spoke to, were they mainly former soldiers from Afghanistan or Iraq? All kinds of people. And the, the, I mean, the book's also a distillation of 10 years of conversations with people. You know, I've come across people, veterans of every conflict, up to including the Second World War. So they're all in there in spirit, if not directly quoted and interviewed. But I interviewed lots of veterans from lots of different eras, from Northern Ireland right through the First Gulf War, Second Gulf War, and, and so on, uh, and some early, people earlier as well. And I also draw on the experience of American veterans um, though the book has a British focus of American veterans and Australian veterans, Vietnam veterans in both cases, and the conclusions they've come to about various various facets of veteran experience. A point in all of this that often isn't discussed, especially on the left, is a, a kind of contradiction around the role of the military among some people on the left. I mean, we've already kind of touched on the crowd who will talk up abolishing the army or or just talking about the army as if they're cops. There is another strain on the left that talk about citizens, armies, which would probably involve some kind of conscription, the kind of mass armies that you had in World War One and World War Two, versus kind of uh, popular militias, which we've never we've not seen really in the West. No, is this something that you've touched on? Because it was certainly a factor when it came to the Vietnam War, because you had the draft and the big divisions over. I've had a response to that. You had the famous anti-draft movement, but even people yeah. like Noam Chomsky weren't in, weren't actually against the draft, for example. So they, yeah, they saw it strategically valuable. Yeah, I'm not sure. I don't know Noam Chomsky's position on it. I wonder if it was it because people, the military, could be infiltrated in some sense. I I, I try and talk. I try and speak to him a, a little bit in the book. I mean, the first thing is that the left has no influence over whether there's an army or not at the moment. The left is defeated as we stand. So it's an idea. So it's, it's interesting to talk about it, but we have no, no influence whatsoever. It's academic. Um, yeah, it's academic. Um, yeah, I suppose um, I'm, I'm fond of it as a model. I'm, I mean, you can look at groups which have military organisations where you can where they're democratic. You can look at the Kurds, some of the Kurdish militias. You can look at my, my partner is a historian of Spain, of anarchism in Spain. There's lots of examples there. Um, I've learned recently, which are very interesting, about armies without officers, about armies where things are voted, voted in and out and on. There's the model of the the agitators, the new model army, which I also draw on because that's part of the left tradition uh, among military people where they start to elect their own leaders. I'm currently completely obsessed with Marcus Redeker and I'm reading his book on pirates, which mm. also shades into some of the new model army the English Revolution stuff, but how they how they operated militarily, where they would elect a captain, and his power was always checked in various ways, except in combat, where you don't really have time to have a vote, which to me is completely understandable. 
Um, and then I, you can look at people like Tom Wintringham, who was actually in the forerunner of the RAF in the First World War, fought in the International Brigades, and later became the founder of the Home Guard. He was, uh, or, or a particular part of the Home Guard, he was building the nucleus of the insurgency, which would have happened had the Germans taken um, mainland Britain. And he's probably the, I mean, he was, a, he, was a, he was, he was, you know, an interesting character, philanderer, scoundrel, military genius. Uh, probably the best Marxist military thinker this country's ever produced, but a colourful and a dubious character in many ways. But he's talking about different kinds of um, democratic militia and stuff like that. So I do go into those ideas. I don't know what that would look like. I suspect it would be uh, dependent on the context. I mean, is it an occupation? You know, what what is it? Are we defending an invasion? Are we dealing with um, an invasion that's already happened and we're fighting an occupation? I mean, as you say, it's academic. Uh, but I, do, I try and touch on them because I felt the book would have, because I do think about them and the book might have been lacking a little bit without it, without an attempt to provide some kind of alternative model. But I do, I do talk about it. I do talk about it. What the power of my conclusions, you'll have to judge for yourself. It is fascinating when it comes to the English Civil War that the army was kind of the driving force of the revolution. Yeah. I think there's even evidence now that certain wings of the army were opposed to the invasion of Ireland, for example. Yeah, and, and that was uh, I, there's a couple of books I wish I'd read, including several of Marx Redkers beforehand. Because I quote scholars on the on the matter, like John Rees has done a very good book, The Level of Revolution. I, I always knew there was a a section of the army which was against going to Ireland, but my impression was that it was because they hadn't been paid. Actually, it seems to have been the case that there was actual anti-war feeling, and they're also they're talking about so many things. So many things are caught up in that moment, which is why I refer to it a lot to Rainsborough and Shakespeare, these fantastic characters. Um, they're talking about the commons, they're talking about suffrage, they're talking about monarchy, they're talking about all the questions, lots of questions which are still need to be unknotted today, which have come to the fore again today, about property and the commons and, and who votes and how we vote, you know, democracy. Um, in, in, in the context of the day, obviously they're talking about the vote for men of a certain age. But... Uh, yeah, so much of that stuff seems relevant. And also when you look at the demands of the agitators, they are the same demands as today. They're talking about indemnity from war crimes carried out during the war. Uh, that is a current, as we know, in current discussion around and within the military community, talking about pensions and um, settlements for war widows. Both of those things are current and live issues. The post-war settlement for the combatants, you know, these are things which are still still happening and what we have is that everyone's what exists is these charities with ridiculous names led by former officers help for heroes and so on and and a lot of the politics i i mean it's weird because rbl does a kind of vaguely trade union job for veterans and veterans are weird because being a veteran is like it's about a job you used to do it's about a job you don't even do anymore so it's a weird kind of organization you're not organizing it around work if you're out of the military but yeah, a lot of the things, those things that they were discussing, if you were to lay them out to a blazer, which is what we call that that cohort of right-wing veterans in their blazers and berets, um, they would recognise, they would recognise these issues and they would be, they're timeless in front of the military, for the military human. It makes me recall um, discussions I had with my grandfather who served in Northern Ireland um, during the, the height of the Troubles. He came very close to serving in the Falklands as well. And he was screwed out of his pension, basically. As I understand it, many veterans have been. Yes, 
still still a live issue, still still going on. Although he has quite right wing politics, he he doesn't do the whole dressing up and putting on his medals thing because he thinks it's crass. Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Which is there, there is, it is a thing. It is a thing. And within yeah. military blazer politics, I kind of call. I'm not that comfortable with the term conservative anarchist, but there is a kind of there is a kind of communitarian thing within it. But obviously, it's tied to some really right wing politics. Mm. And I use that. I use the term in the book. But uh, yeah, there is something almost socialist within it, but it's like limited. It's very limited. It's only me and my mates. And I try and describe them. That, that that kind of politics is like you would rail against a hosepipe ban and be like a state oppression, but you would at the same time probably go on Facebook, see some BLM protesters and be like, we should shoot them. It's a weird set of politics. It's a weird collision of communitarian and really individualistic and pro-authoritarian ideas. And it's But it's also, when you look at it, it's a predictable outcome of that kind of institutional experience. Like you can see why you would end up like that. It's like extreme self-reliance, but also obsessed with teamwork and not being jack, not being selfish, and so on. So the military produces very strange, very strange people, or people with very, very strange kinds of ideas, which you know they're like oil and water. It's very hard to reconcile them. So they're constantly locked in this process of trying to reconcile these these very different things. And I can't help but ask you at this point. What did you make of the way that the US and the UK finally withdrew from Afghanistan? I was there last year, January last year, 15 years after I went as a soldier. I went back as a journalist looking for these um, the CIA's death squads, their kill teams, who had taken over from the Navy SEALs and the SAS with kill or capture missions. Um, and it was very clear. Kabul was relatively stable, and in many ways it would be quite appealing to the Western liberal lens they were like girls wearing jeans girls riding bikes people going to school outside Kabul nothing like that exists Kabul was always an island and it was an island that was made possible by American power by American military power when we went out to the Ulu the countryside as we used to call it in the army um, it was absolutely clear that, that this was just a tiny section of Afghanistan that was fortified so long story short entirely predictable I can't remember what someone on the intercept was talking about. The reason it went so badly wrong, what they should have done is left two years ago before it went terribly bad. Had they left two years ago, the only way it could have been done was to have a recognised handover of power to the Taliban. And that is when American hubris kicks in. This was always going to happen, but they waited until the last minute because they couldn't countenance handing over power to the Taliban. And so they basically ended up with this complete disaster, this kind of Rourke's Drift, Zulu-like idiot spectacle around Kabul airport and the mad rush and people clinging onto planes and Apache helicopters flying up and down the runway to scare people off. So it struck through with American hubris. And then in the middle of it all, as if to cap it off, they blow up a vehicle with 10 innocent people in it with a drone strike and claim it's ISIS for about a week before it becomes clear that it was uh, it was civilians. I think it's seven of seven or eight of which were young children. Um, so no, completely predictable. And this was predictable last year when I was there. And people who are more who are better Afghan hands than me will tell you it's been predictable for multiple years, maybe even decades, that this is how it would end. There's even reports that the 
the US's uh, maybe a reluctant way uh, almost collaborating with the Taliban because they view them as a lesser evil to ISIS. I mean, what do you make of that? I think that will probably that is probably what will be borne out yeah. um, in the end. Where we were in Afghanistan had been ISIS territory until a couple of months previously because we, we were out in a village interviewing some people whose village had been drone struck by these CIA militias um, and the troops were coming down out of the mountains and American trucks, obviously, the Afghan National Army were coming down. But yeah, they they will have a foothold. Um, I don't think they're quite on stellar greasy proportions. They're still a marginal group in Afghanistan. But it tells it tells a story that there's, a, there's an organisation which was founded in Iraq which now has a franchise in Afghanistan uh, and are active there. And well, they carried out an attack on the Kabul airport, obviously. Only last week they blew up 100 people at a Shia mosque, northern Afghanistan. Um, I suppose the broader picture, though, is um, China, Pakistan, who are always centrally involved, which is a very jarring when I try and explain that to soldiers, that the ISI were helping the people who were blowing us up. But that is, of course, the case. Um, and sheltering the people who are blowing us up. The, the Pakistani security services, obviously, long-time sponsors of the Taliban. But yeah, I suppose it's, it's, you know, there are lots of other countries around Afghanistan which will may now step into the void. Iran, Russia, but I think signally China, Pakistan will continue to play its part. And I, I mean, I, I don't ever, would never claim to be an Afghanistan expert, but it's, um, it's going to be messy, except it's not going to involve the UK and America quite so centrally. Did you think it would take this long for the occupation to end? I don't. I never really made a prediction, to be honest. I don't know. I mean, what can you say? Twenty years is a good round figure. <laughs> um, it could have limped on. I know when the Soviets pulled out, the government limped on for another three years or so, kind of like the Vietnamese government in Hanoi. But yeah, I, I never really made a prediction. But I, it was clear when I was there last time that that the government was only existed in in the, within a kind of a bubble of American air power and military power. Uh, and the Kabul was an anomaly compared to, I think some of the other big cities had, were never as secure as Kabul, but, but, but had some kind of, were more secure. But out in the country, out in rural Afghanistan and the smaller cities, there was, there was never any kind of central government control. And it, that's the history of Afghanistan in a nutshell. So, yeah, I think it was clear what was going to happen when you were in afghanistan as a as a soldier and you decided to to walk as it were um was that partly because you thought this is definitely a doomed mission no i think it was the impact the, the impact which was apparent on the local people yeah. it's very clear to to me that we went in with all these highfalutin notions of what we we're going to do and actually we destabilized helmand province we became a lightning rod our presence created the insurgency, which is not to say Helmand was always a, a violent place. Of course it is. It's conservative, rural, southern Afghanistan. But our presence there compounded that and made it much worse because then lots of people... And then there's a tendency to, to say that everyone shooting at us was the Taliban. I don't think that holds up. When you look at sophisticated thinkers like David Kilcullen, sophisticated thinkers, scholars of counterinsurgency like David Kilcullen, Mike Martin, uh, people like these, you'll see a much more complex picture of what was going on there, where we got pulled into local feuds, uh, people who we thought our allies would be like, that guy over there in the next valley is an insurgent. Uh, and in fact, that person was a, a rival from the past. So yeah, it was always going to be terribly messy. But I think it, it was more the, for me, it was the impact 
on local people and the sense that we've been lied to, that we've been given all these reasons we were going to go, reasons which you could buy into, you could invest in those reasons. And if someone's telling you you're going to go and do good in the world, why wouldn't you invest in that? I mean, if you don't have any politics, now now we're both old and cynical, obviously, but at the time, you know, there are good reasons to invest in that. If you want to do something um, of value in the world, the army markets itself as being able to do that. Of course, that's not true, but not everyone knows that, so we shouldn't scoff. But yeah, and it, certainly also it was a moral, it was a moral problem. Later, I became political. Initially, it was a moral thing. Though I've always been, un- I'm uncomfortable with the term conscientious objector, to be honest, because I've, I've come to this conclusion that a conscientious, conscientious objector, very admirable p- people, many conscientious objectors, and they do, they do what they do on various grounds. But I always think an objector is a, a mutineer who doesn't have any organising skills. With hindsight, with hindsight, you should be organising in the ranks. And had I had any organising skills, that's probably what I should have been doing. Because conscientious objection is, generally speaking, individual protest. And it has a value, and it can be very brave and very courageous. But what we need is mutiny. And that's a, that's a different thing. And that requires organisation and mass.